Good afternoon. Feels like afternoon too, doesn't it? We've got sun shining like that. Glad everybody could make it tonight. Anybody ever do any thinking? Well, no, that's a different that's a different question. <laughs> everybody knows what it is to do some thinking, right? Um. I guess we could say that thinking was first cousin, at least, to meditating. Anybody ever do any meditating? Biblically speaking, what does meditating mean? Yeah, dwelling on it. Uh, remember what the cow does with his food? Yeah, you, you just kind of chew on it and... Then chew on it some more and think about it and, and, uh, you just meditate. You, you spend some time. You dwell on something. And, um, this past week I was doing some meditating and, um, that's where our, um, subject will come from tonight. Some of the things I was thinking about. And I thought it would be appropriate if you would think with me about these things. And maybe the implications. In Psalm 19 verse 14, uh, the psalmist said, most of you could quote this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And then uh, in Psalm 119, David talks quite a bit about meditating. He says things like... Um, all the day my meditations are upon thee. And then a little bit later he'll say, all through the night my meditations were about you. Um, obviously David, the psalmist, spent quite a lot of time thinking and meditating about the Lord. What's probably, let's name two or three things right now that keep us from meditating. This is not necessarily part of the study, but meditation is not not something we do a lot of nowadays. And I think there's some reasons for that. What busyness? Um, <laughs> you really are feeling old tonight, aren't you, Sylvia? <laughs> Sylvia said earlier she had the old what did you say old people's disease tonight. <laughs> and and she's really confessing tonight, falling asleep. Okay. Oh, thank you. That that's what I was thinking about. TV, phones, computers. We have so many distractions, don't we? We have so many things that fill up our um, atmosphere with sounds and things that draw our attention away, whether it be visually through radio. I mean, visually through radio, <laughs> visually through TV and 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 the like, or uh, audibly through radio. There's just uh, there's a million things out there that constantly vying for our attention. And and really, I think meditation is something a lot of times that we don't do much anymore because we get up, we flip the TV on, and automatically our focus is drawn to whatever it is that's on. And uh, then if we come home from work and we've got old people's disease, 
we plop down in the recliner and kick our feet up and, and turn the TV on, and then visually we've got something vying for our attention. Uh, isn't it, isn't it uh, interesting to realize that David had none of that? He had none of those things vying for his attention. I think that's probably why he wrote a lot about the stars and the sun and the moon as he, as a shepherd would sit out there and look at the skies and the stars and the trees and the grass. And, and you see all the illusions of those things that he was spending time thinking about all throughout the Psalms. So meditation is something I think that's getting more and more difficult to do. Uh, aside from that, we've all got things on our minds, right? Am I the only one or have there been other people of you who sometimes lay awake in the middle of the night thinking about stuff? And sometimes not stuff that will build you up and help you. Sometimes it's stuff that's bugging you, right? And, and there's all kinds of things that will di- distract us from that. But in one of those times this past, uh, well, a couple of days ago, when um, I was kind of away from everything and doing some thinking, this this line of thought came um, into my mind, and I began to think about it. About It really is about the goodness of God as much as anything. But then other things began to come in through side windows as I began to think about the the goodness of God. So I'd like for you to, and we're going to kind of go go through the back door on this um, as we discuss this together. And I want to go all the way back into the book of Genesis, all the way back to Adam's day. Adam, of course, was the first man. We'll talk probably a little bit more about him on Sunday. But um, Adam, the Bible teaches us, was created, of course, by God. His likeness and image. Um, God had made the um, birds and the squirrels and the reptiles and the hippos and all the, the animals God had made. Um, and then um, he created Adam. Adam was different from all the others, however, because... The Bible says that that God took Adam from the dirt, from the clay, and fashioned him and molded him. Now, that's not the different part because the Bible also indicates that he sort of did the same thing with the animals. He created them from the earth as well. But then God did something different with man than he ever did with the animals. And what was that? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, as a result of that, became a living soul. God breathed, God, into his nostrils, and man became a living soul. Is it not true that God had special designs and aspirations for man, different from the animals? In what ways? Okay, man did have have um, uh, dominion over the animals and over everything that was created. But as far as being in a relationship with their creator, how is man different from everything else that God created? Is it not true that God created man with 
a design in his heart and mind to have fellowship with man? Is that true? God wanted to have fellowship. He created man in order to have fellowship with him. Um, God created man um, so that he could um, dialogue with him. Come, let us reason together, the, the Lord says. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white like wool. The Lord wants us to come and dialogue with him. So he made, he made man for fellowship. He made man to be able to dialogue with him. And he also made man to reverence him. Or we could say to worship him. Now, do you think we're on the right track there? Did not God make us to worship Him? Now, when you look at that and think about that, and then for just a moment think about how that all turned out. As a matter of fact, it all turned out not so good, didn't it? It's it's my... um, understanding, and I would envision right after creation, based on what we read in Genesis uh, 1 through 3, um, the Bible talks about um, how Adam and Eve were walking through the garden in the cool of the day and heard the voice of the Lord, right? The Lord communicated with them, and they communicated with God. They talked to God. And that's what God wanted. They had fellowship with God. And that's what God wanted. Um, God created us to look up to Him and acknowledge that He's the Creator and you made me. So you're greater than I am. I'm the creation. You're the Creator. With um, And then with reverence and awe, we would look up to God and worship Him and... Um, Acknowledge Him as the Creator, as the God who is. Um, Eve and Adam, of course, sinned, and the fall took place. And then what happened with all of this? We read when the fall took place, they were banished from the garden, right? That they wouldn't have access to the tree of life. Um, Adam and Eve died spiritually, did they not, at that point in time? They no longer had fellowship with God. That was no longer there. They never, they didn't have the opportunity then to dialogue with God at that particular point. That wasn't there. They hadn't reverenced God, and neither had they really worshipped God any longer, and that was there. Adam's, Adam's life had been changed completely. He was created um, perfect, very good in the sight of God. And now he has what some people have called the Adamic nature, some people original sin. He was changed. Because of that sin, he was changed. He was changed. He was banished from the garden. And in a very real way, he died spiritually. 
and was separated from God. That's how all of us are born. We're, we, with that same nature, that fallen nature. And so it's interesting to understand that if you would allow me just to use some language that's not theological necessarily, but it's, I'm just meditating. I'm, I want you to think with me. How do you think God felt about all of this? Okay, so let's say if it's, it's the end of school and a lot of people are graduating and taking tests. Let's make it simple. Pass or fail. When the Lord looks at this scenario and what had happened with Adam and Eve and mankind, did they pass or fail? Okay, they failed. Would everybody agree with that? Then we go a little bit farther in the scripture to about Genesis chapter 5 and 6, 7, right in that range. To the days of Noah. Somebody tell me what the Bible says about humanity in the days of Noah. That's right. Man's thought processes, what he had on his mind, his imaginations, the intents of his heart, the Bible says, were only evil continually. And how did God feel about that? Did he say, oh, I'm so glad I made man? That's a, he said it repented God that he had made man. And... In all of humanity, there was a man whose name was Noah. The Bible says he was a perfect man and did not do evil. And the Lord spoke to Noah, and, and we know the story about the building of the ark. Noah's family was allowed to accompany him on the ark because of the grace of God. But everybody else on the face of the earth died in this flood started out, Adam uh, and Eve failed initially. And then later along, uh, when we get to Noah, and, and I'm just going to write Noah's name, but I'm going to let Noah stand for his whole generation. Did Noah and his generation as a whole, did they pass or fail? They failed, didn't they? Because remember, God wanted fellowship with man, dialogue with man. He wanted man to reverence him and worship him. It didn't work with Adam and Eve, and it didn't work with in Noah's day with all the people. Now, Noah was a righteous man, but the rest of humanity, uh, we could see them basically as a failure. Let's fast forward through the Bible a little bit more until we come to... Um, the last part of uh, the book of Genesis and the first few chapters of the book of Exodus where the Lord is calling out uh, from the world His own people. He made a promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, I'm going to uh, make you a great nation. Your name will be great. Your seed will be as the sand of the sea and the stars in the heavens, innumerable talking about the Jews and, and the people that would come. And um, in that area of the Bible that I've just mentioned, Genesis and Exodus, they've, they have gone into Egypt, they have multiplied, they have, have become uh, 
um, hundreds of thousands strong in number. Um, they're enslaved in Egyptian bondage, and then the Lord calls Moses to go and lead them out of Egyptian bondage and make of himself a people. Somebody, if you want to talk about um, what's important, the Lord gave them commands. What was the very first command that God gave his people? Say it loudly, please. So if we want to look at Israel here, um, and we mean that as the whole nation of Israel, and the Lord, the first, the first commandment that he gave them was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You're a special people. You're a peculiar people unto me. I want to fellowship with you. I want to have dialogue with you. I want you to reverence me and worship me. We have a peculiar, unique relationship because you're mine in a way that nobody else is. That's the way he viewed Israel, the apple of his eye, in fact. And um, as we read about the history of Israel, overall, over the, the hundreds of years of biblical history that we read, do they get a passing grade or a failing grade when it comes to living up to these things? They fail. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Fast forward from Old Testament um, into the New Testament age and the dispensation of the church. The word church in, uh, in the Greek is ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. That's who the church is supposed to be, the called out ones. Called out from the world, called unto the Lord called away from sin, just like being sanctified, being set apart from sin, being set apart unto the Lord so that we can have fellowship with Him, dialogue with Him. We will reverence Him, put Him first, and worship Him. That's who the church is supposed to be, right? But then when you look at now 2,000 years of church history, and of course I'm just going to hit some of the, just for the, the sake of example, um... Um, the Crusades, is that a, is that a um, proud moment in church history? The Crusades. Somebody, can somebody tell me just in a sentence or two what the Crusades were? Religious wars. And in some ways, um, an attempt to force Christianity on others. Right? An attempt to force Christianity on others by the use of warfare and weapons and, and hundreds of thousands of lives were taken. That's part of church history. Um, popes, leaders of the church in the Dark Ages, the popes, um, some of whom were homosexuals, recorded by history. Some of whom were murderers, wicked men. But 
leaders of the church. And the church officially stated that the Pope was the vicar of Christ, the representative of Jesus on this earth, and the things that they were doing. That's not a proud moment, is it, in, in the history of the church? Um, let's leave antiquity and come into the days in which we live now. Um, today, the term church and, and um, being a follower of Jesus is used so loosely that you can believe about anything you want to believe and practice and do just about anything you want to do and still claim to be a Christian. Am I right? It just about makes me sick to my stomach every time I see this woman pastor in, in Raleigh who is a, an avowed lesbian getting on the TV spouting off her mouth about what the church ought to be doing. It's disgusting. And, and that is an example locally of what we see going on worldwide, where the group of people, the the ecclesia, that is to say the church, which means the called out ones, the ones who are supposed to be uniquely recognized by Him and in the world for fellowship and dialogue, who reverence God, fear God, honor God, worship God, that group is characterized so much by what we've just described. Now, we're speaking in broad terms now. Does the ecclesia, the church of today, you think it gets a pass or fail? I think probably in broad terms it does get a fail. Failing grade. Now, as we look, look, you see a pattern there, don't you? You see God's working in, in creation and what He so much designed man for and wanted from man. It f- failed here, man did. Then you get up to Noah's day and the whole um, generation basically failed other than, than Noah and his family. And then you go to Israel and you have such high hopes for this specific select group of people that the Lord has brought out and raised up to be a particular uh, unique group of people in the eyes of the Lord uh, for special purpose, and they fail. And then you come to the church, broadly speaking now, um, as it's recognized today, and you see it failing at the same thing with fellowship, dialogue, reverence and worship and it makes me understand something about God there's a word we talk about sometimes um, I think it's an important word we're going to talk about it one Sunday uh, didn't even thought about it in that terms but in the fruit of the spirit the word long suffering does it look like to you that God is long suffering Um, there's a passage of Scripture, if you want to turn with me in your Bible, in Second Peter. Um, 
Second Peter chapter three. Verse three. Second Peter three verse three. Scripture says, knowing this, or know this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8, But beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness. But here's that word, but is long-suffering. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. But the day of the Lord will come. First of all, the Bible tells us that God is long-suffering, isn't He? Um, we are to be long-suffering. But I think this shows that God is long-suffering. I think I can look back on my life and see in my life where God is long-suffering. What about you? Um, this passage is talking about the coming of the Lord and how He is delaying His coming. And some people, because of that, say that it's all just um, just a joke, just a myth. It'll never happen. It's just a story. We were singing, Jesus is coming soon when I was a little boy. And we're still singing it now. And he's still coming. And people are still mocking. They don't believe it. But the Bible says, don't let that affect you. You understand that God is long-suffering. Not willing that any should be perished. If the Lord had come um, back in the 70s, I might not have made it. It would depend on when in the 70s he came. Because I wasn't living right. But you get my point? The Lord, not willing that any should perish, just keeps forestalling and waiting, giving more time for us to turn to him. But his long-suffering has an end, doesn't it? There's going to be a point when he says, okay, that's enough. Time's over. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Elements will, will melt with a fervent heat and all the things we've heard and read about in the scripture are going to take place. Well, we've covered quite a span, haven't we? 
time-wise and uh, a very broad area. It's been a long time since Adam when he failed. It's been a long time since the generation of Noah when the flood took place. And now people argue about was there ever flood really to begin with and was there an ark and so on and so forth. And they doubt it. The nation of Israel uh, and their history been a long time since they failed. Seems far removed from us by thousands of miles and even thousands of years. Then you talk about the church and its history. It's been a long time since the Crusades. I had nothing to do with that, did you? And some of the other things that have happened. But the point I'm, I'm, I want us to understand is if we're not careful, we will be, we will be far removed in our own walk with the Lord from from Adam and Noah and Israel and Ecclesia and all of those failings represented on the board. But here's where the rubber meets the road, folks. I can't fail. It's up to me for me not to fail. Right? Uh, today, in society today, the way the church is today, the way the, in the, in the broader scheme of things, the, I'm using that loosely. The church of today is not the church that Jesus is going to rapture. There is within the church what the Bible calls a remnant. There's a group of people, even today, who want to have fellowship with God. There's a group of people, even today, that will talk with God and will allow and believe that God can talk to them. There's a group of people even today who fear God. I, did you all not know that Christians are supposed to fear God too? We fear Him. We honor Him. Uh, we reverence Him. And by all means, we worship Him. Now, we cannot allow ourselves to get lost in the failures of what's in that circle. We have to make sure that we're part of that group that are following the Lord and are participating in these things that he created us for. Does that make sense? We have to make sure that we're in fellowship with God. We have to make sure that we're talking with him and he's talking with us. We have to make sure that we reverence God, that we fear him, that we obey him, that we worship him, exalt him, and, and do his bidding and obey his word and so forth. So as we look at this... Um, there's a point in which this all comes down to an individual. Am I right? Who is it that has to make the decision in your life, in your skin? I can't make that decision for you, can I? And you can't make that decision for me. And I'll tell you what, furthermore, you can't blame this for where you are with the Lord. The, ultimately, the responsibility for where we are with God and how we're doing in these areas. Listen, it is not the it is not the the church's the, the in the broad sense. It's not the church's responsibility, or or um, you can't use this as an excuse for where you are with the Lord if you're lacking in these areas. Am I right? And you can't use the local church as an excuse. And I'm going to be so bold as to say you can't even use the pastor as an excuse. No, because the buck stops here with you and with me. I, I, 
I have to make up my mind. I'm going to live for God and go to heaven no matter what anybody else does. And you have to do the same thing. And and now is the time when, when if is it not true that all these people got distracted somehow? You know, Adam got distracted. Um, who ate the fruit in the garden? Pardon? That's a good answer. Eve ate it first. Eve ate it first. But then what did that sorry Adam do? Listen, who knew better? Who heard from God? You eat every tree you want to, but you leave that one tree alone. Who heard that from God? Adam did. And then who ate first? Eve. And then what did he do? Instead of listening to God, he listened to her. That's exactly right. And, but, but we have to understand we can't blame Adam and we can't blame somebody else for where we are with the Lord because that's the unique thing. God, God sees our heart. God hears your prayer. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That He hears your prayer. He knows your heart. And you can be as close to the Lord as you want to be, and nobody can stop it. And we're living in a day where now everybody wants to point fingers at somebody else and say, they're my problem, and the Bible says they're not your problem. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. People aren't your problem. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against principalities and powers. The devil is at work trying to destroy everybody he can. And he's being pretty successful doing it. But we have to make up our minds. If you see the big picture here, there's a lot of failing going on. But I'm going to tell you what, there's a whole lot of people. Now, if you go back from the Bible and search for something else, you'll find out that there were people all along the way who were true to God and stood for Him, right? Yes. And I would submit to you, when we choose which group we want to be counted among, not among the failures, we want to be counted among the Noahs and those that God saw who were righteous. God saw who was willing to fellowship with Him, dialogue with Him, and reverence Him and worship Him. And that's who we need to be. Oh, I thought somebody was talking. Oh, they're talking in there, aren't they? Almost ready to say yes, Lord. <laughs> now, do you think, as we look at these things here, and and I started with these things, and now I want to end with these things. Um, you think those things are important? Um. Extremely important is very true, but we, um, I fear we don't give them the um, attention that they need. Um, to have fellowship, 
to have fellowship. Think about what that means. Talk, talk to me about fellowship. What would it mean to have fellowship with God? Let's put it in practical terms. Let's make it where we can understand it uh, in a practical sense. That with God. So what you're saying? You, you talk to God? Okay. And then... Everybody heard that, right? You talk with God. That that certainly is going to be part of fellowship, right? But as you talk with God, then what begins to happen as you talk with God? True, He talks back. So that comes to dialogue. You may have heard it said before that... um, Prayer, talking to God, talking to God is one half of what prayer is. What's the other half? Listening or God talking to you. It'd be no point in you listening if he wasn't talking, right? So you listening presupposes the fact that he's got something he wants to say to you. So talking to God is certainly part of fellowship. And then the fact that he would talk back to us. Um, is another part, but let's go deeper than that. Um, let's face it, I could take uh, the Lord's Prayer. And every single day I could say, My Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. My kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And finish the prayer and say amen and walk away. But that doesn't mean I've really talked to God. That That's more, um, if that's all it that it consists of is probably qualifies more as vain repetition than prayer, right? So, what else, aside from talking, is involved in this fellowship and dialogue? Relationship. Relationship, which... (laughs) Say that again? It builds on each other by communication. Okay, relationship, you, you said builds... I thought you said something else that I was looking for too. Communication and spending time together. Okay. It, when you fellowship, it does require some time. And it does require some communication. And it does, you do build on where you've got now. And, and there's, and what else is involved here? Okay, his word certainly is um, a big part of that. Let me ask you this, is there any emotion in this anywhere? Is there any feeling to it anywhere? Is Is that not always true with true fellowship, that there's feeling there? And when you're not experiencing it and you're used to having it, you miss it? which probably is going to make you hungry to get back to where you were so you could have that feeling that goes along with the fellowship and begin to to build even more this this relationship. You see, we're we're living in a world where the church of our day is so shallow spiritually. Am I right? 
so shallow spiritually, where people think they can go to church and sit through a service, whether it's 30 minutes or two hours, it doesn't matter. They think they can just sit through a service and go home and they've met their obligation to God for the week. And you can go to church 52 Sundays a year and never have fellowship with God, can't you? And not listen and not really even talk to Him. Go through the motions, not reverence Him. Um, let's, let's talk about the word reverence for just a minute. Reverence, what does it mean? What's the root of the word reverence? Respect, revere. Revere means okay. Does the Bible teach us to fear God? Has true to fear God is the beginning of wisdom. Um, does anybody have an example? Uh, whether it's in your life or somebody else's life of, of fearing God. I'll give you one and I'd like for you to share one if you can think of any. I can remember different times when I was, as I was growing up, when the power of God would be so strong in a church service that everybody there ended up on their knees because of the fear of God was so strong. You didn't sit there and look around. You might not have been right with God. You might not have been plugged into the service. But when that that holy presence of God, when the power of God came in that place, you got on your knees. You were driven to your knees almost. You felt like if you didn't get on your knees, you were going to get slain. And I don't mean in the spirit. You felt like you this. it was dangerous not to honor God by getting on your knees. Anybody ever been in, in a place like that? See, now how long has it been since we've seen that happen here? Yeah. And, and I guess what I'm saying is, as I look at this failure and this failure and this failure and this failure, I have to make up my mind that I'm not going to allow that failure to come home here. I can't let that happen. I can't let all of that Affect to me to where I become as as lukewarm, as um, secular, as status quo, business as usual, go through the motions, Christianity. I've just about had it with that. Anybody else had it with that? And and if we don't break out of that, I. If we don't break out of that, we're, we're likely to end up among this group. Failed. Somebody else share. So true. And, and, excuse me, just a minute. If we don't revere God, we're no more than a social club. There's a lot of people in our society today that are looking to a church to meet the need for their social life. They're not looking for spiritual 
food. They're not looking for a relationship with God. They're looking for friends. It's their version of a nightclub, except it's a church. I can meet friends. I can get to know people. But that's 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 a, having friends is a wonderful thing. But I'm going to tell you, if that's where we go with the church, if that's the fellowship we're looking for, we're missing out. Because the fellowship we need is the fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and then with His people in the context of what we're reading here. So, um, point well taken. And now. Out of my chest, and I was scared to go home if I didn't go to the altar because okay. something was pulling me there. You don't see much of that anymore either. Okay. Annette mentions the fact that you don't see much of that. You don't you don't see people gripping the pews with Holy Ghost conviction anymore, trembling and weeping and afraid to go home without making things right with God. Um, how many can relate to that? We understand what she's saying. Now, let's ask the question, why? Why don't we experience that anymore? What is that, what is that feeling that you're describing called? Conviction. It's called conviction. Where is the conviction? Before I ask where is the conviction, let me ask this question. Where does the conviction come from? The Holy Spirit. That's where conviction comes from. So maybe... I've got another incident of, you know... Okay. Someone maybe was speaking in tongues. You could hear that person. You didn't need a. They didn't need a microphone. You could hear them clearly throughout the whole place. Mm-hmm. Very true. I think um, as I study church history, and I, I don't have any experience with church history except in this church family and and the Church of God Pentecostal Church. I've never, I've never been a Baptist. I've never been a Methodist. I've never been a, um, a Lutheran. But church history teaches me all of those that I just named years ago, they knew the same thing that Annette You didn't talk, that wasn't in a Pentecostal church you were describing, was it? What kind of church was it? Nazarene church. It was a holiness church. Yeah. There used to be Holy Ghost conviction. And Baptist churches, Methodist churches, all around. Okay? Now, I see, what bothers me is we're closer to the coming of the Lord than we've ever been. Less people are saved than they've ever been, as far as the numbers of the population. But yet, it seems as if conviction is absent. So what's the answer to that? 
think that, well, the Holy Ghost hasn't changed, so that's not different. But I think people, our society obviously has changed, and maybe our brains are just thinking about the other stuff and not really getting in tune with God. We're too busy thinking of what are we going to do after church? What did I do yesterday? What am I doing tomorrow? Got to do this, this, this. It's kind of like a, a computer. Your brain just keeps flashing other things instead of you just letting it go and fully committing yourself to worshiping. I, I don't think there's a fear of God in the world today mm-hmm. like there used to be. Well, there's definitely not in the, in the world. Let me share with you why I think that is the case. And then maybe we can talk just a few minutes about what are we going to do about it. What can we do about it? Remember me sharing with you in 1962, prayer was taken out of schools. And and a year or so later, Bible reading. Up until that point, I don't know if you all know this, but... Um, in our history, in the history of the United States, the Bible has been used as the book that taught people how to read. The readers were based on the Bible. So all throughout our history, we've had the Word of God put in our children in schools until 1962. I've told you, I've told you all this mess has happened in my lifetime. Almost makes me feel guilty. As if I, you know, because in, in my lifetime, prayer's been taken out of schools, Bible reading out of schools, and, and the whole third generation now, third generation of, of no prayer and no Bible in schools, and our, our country's going to hell in a handbasket. That's what's happening. And we don't, we don't understand it. Um, and, and I'll submit to you that it's going to take more than any preacher can do to change things. It's going to have to be a move of God. But I think it's going to be in response to a group of people who get hungry and who, want, who understand, first of all, it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be just... Um, you know, you, you go to church and you go through the motions and you do the same thing every Sunday and everybody goes out to eat. And then it, I mean, there's got to be some spiritual substance, life change, fear of God. Hunger and thirst for the Lord. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got about five to seven minutes. What do you think, um, what is, we've kind of identified a situation here, a problem. Um, and I will tell you that this situation or this problem is not unique to this church. It's, it's, it's covering the world. But by the same token, when we look at what God has called us to and we recognize how far we are from that and living that, um, 
how are we going to become effective for God? How are we going to see this change? Um, can you imagine being in a church service today where the conviction is so strong as we've talked about that it would literally drive people to their knees It changed the church. Um, anybody else? When you were talking about the 1960s, it seems like since then there's been a general lack of respect for authority. And that's kind of trickled through society. Um, people think nothing now of bragging about things that they've accepted in their life that, you know, 20 years ago we wouldn't even talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I've seen a lot of atheists on the, the internet and stuff, and they're proud of it. Oh, yeah. It's a movement with them. And um, they think nothing of slapping down Christians and verbally They think they're superior mm-hmm. in many ways, um, and just there's just so much disrespect. It seems like in America, especially for any authority, anything that's above them, they they won't accept it. Very true. Let me just read this passage, and I, I want to remind you that our our. Um, Sometimes what we're tempted to do is attack people when we find ourselves in a situation like this. But this is why the Bible says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Somebody tell me what wiles means. Tricks, strategy, stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you're here breathing tonight, you're flesh and blood. If you're here tonight, you're not my problem. And I'm not your problem. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Um, That's Ephesians 6, if you want to read the rest of it a little later. But I'll say again, my whole 
um, line of thinking on this meditation that I explained to you is it doesn't matter what happened with Adam and Noah and Israel and what's happened throughout church history. I think we have to make up our minds. It ain't going to happen to me. I'm not going to fail the Lord. I'm not going to turn my back on him. I'm going to fellowship. I'm going to have fellowship with God. I'm going to dialogue with God. I'm going to reverence the Lord. I'm going to worship him. And nobody or nothing is going to stop me in that quest for knowing God and loving him. Wow. I hope you heard that. Satan has his game plan. What's yours? And if you don't have one, you're probably in trouble. Because he has devices and plans. You know, another, another thing I think that might hinder some of the things we were talking about is we have to really search ourselves and live the life before the world so they'll see a difference. You know, it's real easy to be hateful and um, maybe show an unchristian-like attitude and they're watching and if they see that, they think, well, you're no better than I am. You know, so that might be another thing that we need to think about too is how we conduct ourselves as Christians. Yeah, I don't remember who it was that said this, but I believe with all my heart one of the steps that we're going to have to take if we're going to see um, genuine, a genuine move of God come to us is we're going to have to rediscover that altar. We can't just stare at it every Sunday and say, well, I don't need to go. Wouldn't it be a wonderful church that you went to if um, there were multitudes of people who prayed every single Sunday at the altar? I mean, let's be honest. All of us have things we could pray about, don't we? And we stand there like we got it all together. Everything's cool in my life and never... Go and bow before the Lord in an honest way and say, Lord, I need you. And we need to have fellowship with him, dialogue with him. We need to reverence him, worship him. And we need to let it be known that uh, that is a priority in our lives. Well, thank you for um, listening to my meditation tonight. Um, any prayer requests that you want to share?